Full Service Radio is proudly supported and hosted by Simplecast, the easiest way for a podcast creator to publish and distribute audio on the internet. For more information, visit Simplecast.com. Recorded live from the lobby of the Line Hotel in Adams Morgan, Washington, D.C. Hey everyone, welcome to Lunch Agenda on Full Service Radio. We are broadcasting live from the Line Hotel in Washington, D.C., and I am your host, Julie Kurtz. Lunch Agenda is a podcast that uncovers lesser-known parts of the food system, featuring diverse topics like food access, distribution, investment, and food education, with guests like Leah Penniman, Mark Bittman, Marion Nussel, Julian Tertian, Michael Twitty. You can find all the interviews on your favorite podcast app or at lunchagenda.simplecast.com. And by following me on Twitter at at SoilSoulFood. In this Lunch Agenda Eating the Green New Deal series, we're taking a critical look at what it would take to create a Green New Deal in the food system. Learning from farmers, workers, food businesses, policy specialists, scientists, and advocates. Today, in episode six, we look at one of the least understood, least understood components of an equitable and healthy food system, land tenure. So tenure means to hold, yeah. Sure, we could say things like land access or land use, but we're going to kick off with land tenure because It captures the relationships between people or institutions with respect to the land and its resources. And we learned last week, speaking to two millennial farmers, that access to land is difficult enough. But even someone who owns land may not be able to utilize their land or benefit from it or effectively transfer their land if the institutions around them do not support them. So land tenure, we're sticking with it. With, our, with terms like land tenure being thrown around, don't worry, we've got a little, little extra help today from two amazing legal experts, Jillian Hyshaw and Mavis Gregg. Let me tell you about them. Jillian Hyshaw is an attorney and founder of the C- and CEO of Family Agriculture Resources Management Services, abbreviated conveniently FARMS. She worked in land protection for the Missouri Department of Conservation and at the U.S. Department of Agriculture as an environmental planner. She publishes law journal articles on agriculture and environment, and her book, Don't Bet the Farm on Medicaid, Medicaid was published just last year. Mavis Gregg is originally from Black Mountain, North Carolina. She graduated from UNC Chapel Hill and Pepperdine Law School. She spent many years working in real estate and real estate finance and founded the Gregg Law Firm to help address estate planning and heirs' property ownership with families. At the American Forest Foundation, she brings her passion for conservation and land retention to the role of director of the Sustainable Forestry and African American Land Retention Project. Mavis and Jillian, it is such an honor to have you on Lunch Agenda. Thank you so much for being here. Welcome. Thanks for having us, Julie. Thank you for having me. My pleasure. Um, So I'm wondering, to kick this off for you guys, did you both, 
wake up one day at say six, seven years old and run and tell your parents or your grandparents, mommy, daddy, grandma, I, I really want to be an agricultural lawyer. I, I really want to address estate planning and land loss. Um, I'm wondering, if, is that how it happened? Or could you give it, just kind of give us a quick summary of how you became involved in agricultural and land issues? Uh, Mavis, do you want to start us off? Sure. Okay. Um, absolutely did not start off <laughs> knowing that that's the type of law that I wanted to work with. Um, and I've told the story many times, but basically when I was six, my dad promised me a Corvette if I graduated from law school. So I pretty much pursued that career because of this <laughs> promise. So I was right. Six, seven, just kind of different approach. Yeah. Um, but, um, in, from the beginning of my law career, I always worked with real estate and I saw that the people who are most impacted by changes in our economy and by the, um, laws, um, are those who are land rich, cash poor. And Mm. so I felt like with my skills and experience, it would be meaningful for me to work with people who had um, precarious land ownership, help them keep their land, and that's how I got here. I certainly didn't know it would take me to the woods, but <laughs> it has, and it's been very exciting. Wonderful. Jillian, how about you? Um, no, I, I didn't want to be a lawyer. <laughs> I used to watch L.A. Law. I was like, ooh, they argue so much. Um, <laughs> but I loved... Uh, agriculture. I used to help my grandfather. We had a garden Mm. and he was raised on a farm in Oklahoma. And every time I asked him about the farm, he would change the subject. He didn't want to talk about it. So, um, but I took an interest in science and soil. Mm. And so that led to me um, getting my biology degree from Tuskegee University and then um, learning about our land loss kind of in law school I decided to focus on agricultural law, but I specifically went to law school to practice environmental law initially, but the two basically relate. So I stayed and got my uh, LLM in agricultural law after I finished my JD at University of Arkansas Fayetteville. And I've been in environmental ag ever since. It's the only thing that I really want to do as far as practice-wise. So Mavis and Jillian have incredibly good news to share about some of the work that they are doing. It's really powerful work. And, but I, I think it will make more sense if we talk about some of the bad news and some of the, the numbers um, to kind of set some context. Um, so I'm going to, let's say first, we're going we're gonna to talk numbers. So the, the U.S. has roughly um, 2.2 million farms and about 3.4 million total producers so that's people who are, who are actually making decisions on the farm because a lot of people have more than one, one family member working on the farm. Um, but that 2.2 million farms is down from over 6 million a century ago, and, and there was about a high point of, of close to 7 million farms in the 1930s. So we have this major decrease in the number of farms, though total farmland has stayed relatively constant, just a tiny decrease in total farmland. Um, and... and and as we learned last week, land ownership has, has hugely consolidated. Um, we've lost, you know, 4 million farms um, in this century, and, and farm size has, has tripled. And, um, 
as, as the Secretary of Agriculture kind of cr- crudely put in, in Wisconsin uh, last month that, you know, where 500 dairies have been lost this year, that, that the, in the U.S., the big get bigger and the small go out. And in 2017, just 4% of total farms controlled 58% of all farmland. And even that is up from 50% control just 20 years ago. 75% of all agricultural sales stem from just 5% of operations. So ag in the U.S. is really is big business in a way. So land is difficult for all farmers, but there's an added layer for communities of color that have faced racism, financial exclusion, and systemic discrimination from the U.S. Department of Agriculture or Forestry Service. So um, after the Civil War, former slaves went on uh, really to heroic lengths to secure the, um, the sort of the classic 40 acres and a mule that was guaranteed, um, though many were excluded from that. And and African-Americans managed to acquire 16 to 19 million acres of farmland. So owning a 20% total of farms and up up to in 1910, I think the high point was 25% of farms um, were owned by black families. Um, So close to a million farmers at that time, black farmers, and that number has since fallen to less than 20,000. So 98% loss, roughly, and that's compared to 60% loss of farmers overall. The total number of black farmers has dropped from 25% to 1.4% of total farms now. So today, with with 2 million acres remaining in black-operated farms, that that puts, I've heard that the rate of loss is, I think, roughly like 30,000 acres a month. Uh, and, And there's a bit of a caveat there because... That means that it's farms in agricultural production, and some of that is fallow land. Some of that land has returned to, to forest land. Mavis will tell us a little bit more about that. So um, with some of the follow-up studies that the, that the agricultural census has not done in uh, roughly 20 years, it, it may be closer to 7 million acres, but there's some unknown. Um, and studies that have measured and estimated the value of black land loss say it's worth an estimated 250 to $350 billion today. And that would increase American, African-American wealth by 10%. I, I think it's important to mention this. It's, just not, it's not just about the money. It's about the, the dignity and autonomy of, of owning and operating one's own land and, that, and the leadership that landowners have in their communities. So, for example, uh, black landowners played a major role in the civil rights movement. But, but just I want to set this picture that, that our food system really favors big farms, and, and black farmers have always been mo- predominantly small farmers. That 40 acres, even after the Civil War, was still a small farm. So the, the big getting bigger has disproportionately pushed black farmers out. So Jillian and Mavis, could, could you tell us how your work helps address the problem of black land loss or maintaining black land, either either in the present now or related to past land loss. Um, Jillian, do you want to start? I know your land is, your work is a little bit more focused on agriculture land, and, and well, then we'll move into forest land with Mavis. Sure, sure. Um, so I was inspired, um, again, while in law school, I realized that the details of how my family's farm was lost in Oklahoma and my great-grandmother was um, paying and a lawyer to pay the taxes on the land 
land, but the lawyer pocketed the money and the land was sold in a tax lien sale without our notice. And so where my grandfather's house used to be, there's an oil pump going up and down. And so, mm. unfortunately, uh, the story of my family's land loss is fairly common. Mm. I get calls like that a few times a week. Uh, it's definitely increased the past three years, since 2016. Mm. And I focus on aging uh, farmers and focus on elder care abuse, uh, predatory lending, protections, things of this nature. And so I make sure that they have proper estate planning where their will is written, living will, power of attorney, um, make sure that the land is placed in an irrevocable trust or an LLC or something of that sort. I also help with um, civil rights disputes. So uh, just to clarify, I worked for the Missouri Department of Conservation in the area of land protection, and I was an environmental planner for the city of Kansas City. Oh, that's my fault. At Sorry. home. Oh, that's okay. And then I, before I started farms, I worked in D.C. Uh, within the Office of Civil Rights in uh, USDA. And so um, I also help here and there with civil rights issues, complaints against USDA. Hmm. Um, as well. And so the main objective is to keep the land in the family and have them utilize the state planning services and, you know, technical assistance. Uh, but one of the issues is that often when I work with the other attorney, because I work across the country and so I'm not licensed in all these states, mm. but often uh, they don't know who the benefit, they don't they don't know who the beneficiary of the land should go to because a lot of their kids don't want the land. Huh. So that's uh, also been a challenge. Uh, and when you say they, they don't who, want the land, they don't, uh, uh, can you explain more why? Is they it, don't, they don't want to continue ownership after the parents have passed Okay. because they feel like they have to move back to um, like Ruby, South Carolina and, mm. um, they, you know, are living in Atlanta or Philadelphia, sure. L.A. even, and they don't just, they really don't see the value of it. And oftentimes that I find, I started a youth program that I ran for four years at home in Kansas City after law school, and I worked with black farmers at home in Kansas, and I would take, I primarily uh, hired young young men from my old neighborhood and when we took the students out on the farm they would complain they didn't want to work the farm and so just trying to change the mentality of young people or even people in their 50s or 60s mm. um, that are my farmers kids has been a challenge um, mm. over the years because they affiliated land ownership farming with slavery and so trying to change the mentality. I first tried to start with teenagers, hmm. but, you know, now it's, you know, I'm trying to do the same with 50-year-olds has been a bit of a, been of a t bit of a time or a task, so to speak. So Yeah, it's easier with the young. So you have this multiple, A, I mean, the, the legal component and connecting um, 
landowners, farmers with with the legal resources to, to put it, do the proper estate planning, but then also this social aspect you're talking about of helping, um, you know, farmers' kids and or even young teenagers understand what the value of the land is. So there's, it's both the, the legal and the 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 social understanding of what what the land means. Well, that was a program that I had started um, in 06, uh, and I ran it uh, between 06 and 2010 before I moved back to D.C., mm. but now um, there's there's different organizations that have adopted my program model in Kansas City, so it's still going, okay. but um, I primarily work with, with aging farmers now, um, mm. but at the time when I was working with young people, the third year we converted the program over to Green Job Training of Ex-Felons, and we converted a Browns field into an urban garden and a tree nursery. Okay. nursery. But even that segment, again, it, it was the same types of challenges. Sure. So. Sure. Mavis, how about, how about you? How are you working to address the issues of, of land loss in your communities? Um, I started a law practice, so I, I, like as I mentioned before, I was working with residential real estate transactions and real estate finance, um, and in 2015, I launched a law practice specifically to focus on um, helping families who are land-rich, cash-poor, maintain and hopefully grow wealth by keeping their land, stabilizing the ownership, mm. um, and and planning for succession, which, as Jillian mentioned, is very challenging, um, yeah. particularly if you think about um, land ownership in certain communities in the United States have been has been very painful, has been very violent. Yeah. The way our laws are set up um, don't actually line up with how people's lives are. And so um, definitely took on a challenging issue, but something that I feel very passionate about. Um, My own family, um, much of our modest wealth was in land, and most of my close family members passed away within a 10-year period, and with their deaths, um, we lost most of that wealth. Um, And so it's something that hits home Mm -hmm. for me directly and that I feel passionate about. So in my law practice, doing estate planning, um, which is, you know, drafting wills, trusts, um, power of attorney documents, so some of the same documents that Jillian mentioned, but also helping families strategize about what the future looks like in connection with their land. And many of my families had land that's been in the family for decades, if not 100 years. A lot of times the families acquired the land in the early 1900s, if not the late 1800s. And mm-hmm. so the family has been a the land has been a part of the family for a long time, mm-hmm. and they've been able to keep the land and use the land for economic benefits, for um, for a source of legacy to live on. Um, mm-hmm. However, the way that they own it is legally vulnerable. And so mm-hmm. in my practice, the goal is to help them strategize around securing the ownership by creating a different ownership structure. So rather than having multiple family members having a single entity owner of the property that the family then benefits from. Um, So in doing that work, I um, sought out families who wanted to um, 
stabilize ownership, and I did that by connecting with the Sustainable Forestry and African-American Land Retention Project, Mm -hmm. which is based in seven states throughout the southeast, including North Carolina, so partnering with the North Carolina site and um, became a partner of the program and became very familiar with the program, and then when that project transitioned to its current base, which is the American Forest Foundation, the American Forest Foundation created a director position, and uh, I saw that as, as an opportunity to um, broaden the scope of my work and deepen the impact of my work. Um, as a lawyer, I was limited to the state where I'm actively practicing law, and mm-hmm. in this role, I'm able to do the work, not from a legal perspective, but still having similar impact on a much broader um, scale yeah with it being in seven states and and so my understanding of the 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 sustainable forest uh the sustainable forestry and african-american land retention project um so some families may have the uh, stable land ownership already set up and and mm-hmm. so the program is then just helping bring that land into the sustainable forest management but another component may be that if if there is if this is in an unstable um, place, if it's in heirs' property and, and sort of this tenancy in common that may be um, unstable, then the program is helping um, bring stability to the the land ownership in the family. Is that correct? Yeah. Um, yeah, that's correct. So whether you have secure ownership or not, the program at a minimum is educating you around being a good, a good steward of your land, both from a natural resources perspective, but also from a legal perspective. And so educating landowners about why we want to plan and why it's important to make sure that how you own the land now is important for the future. Um, the reality is most Americans do not do, we don't plan for when we're not here. Yeah. Um, so it's not something that's uh, specific to the African-American community. But if you layer that with history of discrimination yeah. and lack of access, um, it can compound the issues, uh, the legal issues of how you own the land or whether or not you plan for it. And so the idea is that this program educates landowners but also connects them with resources and moves them through kind of a a pipeline of objectives that can help them um, have healthy forest and contribute to the forestry uh, conservation in their community and participate in the forestry market um, and uh, keep their land. Yeah, And then, of course, there are benefits that um, are directly related to food and food security, um, which I hope we get to get to talk about. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And uh, um, well, let me just because you mentioned some of the historic discrimination, and I think that's a really important context, especially because I, I do want to talk about how these institutions, you know, what is the role of these governmental institutions if we're going to move toward a this idea of a Green New Deal or, or a more equitable food system. And so uh, we, we got to talk some about this, this bad news, that it's not just this big, you know, get bigger, get out kind of model, but also that, that loss of, of um, black-owned land has a, a really brutal history. And so um, the middle of, as I said, that, that black families really were able to acquire a good bit of land up until the, the early 20th century. And then, and then in the middle of the 20th century is when that black fa- farmland, um, 
and, and black ownership began, began to plummet. And so um, some of that is because of as, as the farm system industrialized and um, farmers were more dependent on loans. Um, so they, the system also changed so that there was this confederated control of agricultural resources distributed at the county level. And that meant that if there's a white supremacist control of local committees, that black landers, landowners were often excluded. Um, and that land, black landowners who tried to integrate into those communities were often, were often targeted. Um, lynching, uh, there's evidence that lynching was higher in, in southern counties that had greater black land ownership um, because of the animosity toward black landowners. Uh, during wartime, there are stories that the draft boards targeted black landowners but overlooked sharecroppers so that white um, owners could still have cheap labor force while black land landowners were taken from their communities. Um, and then sometimes this discrimination is more subtle within USDA programs. So um, as, as farming became more mechanized and farmers became dependent on loans, and, and be these big upfront costs like seeds, fertilizers, um, things that farmers can't necessarily pay back until after harvest. Um, uh, black farmers were often denied loans or those loans were simply delayed. And so black farmers might be planning weeks or even months later than their white counterparts. Um, or they might receive not all of the loan they asked, so they're only planting half their land. Um, so, and these are not necessarily just, uh, you know, old stories. These are contemporary stories and existing legal battles. And I, I've heard some colleagues say, like, I, I tell my farmers, go to this office at the USDA loan office, but not that agency. Or um, uh, that loan officers have, have torn up crop insurance applications in front of farmers. Um, um, I think also just some of the lack of legal access. Mavis, you've talked a little bit about this, but... Um, so 76% of black Americans do not have a will compared to 36% of white Americans. And, and even among college-educated uh, black Americans, that's 68% to 18%. So if you can just imagine the, the vulnerabilities that, that landowners have faced. Um, and, and so, I mean, I, f I feel like we are so lucky to have uh, major champions like Jillian and Mavis now who... who are bridging this huge historical gap where there's been so much distrust. And, and even Jillian, you talked about lawyers pocketing money and, and your family losing that land. Um, and then finally, and then I will be done with my like contextual spiel that, that we couldn't talk about the discrimination without bringing up this big class action lawsuit, the Pigford versus Glickman or, or versus the USDA. Um, and in 1999, a federal judge ruled that you, the USDA systemically denied black farmers loans and disaster payments between 1981 and 1996. And they awarded a group of farmers about a billion dollars in damages, um, though it's worth mentioning that the land was not returned, just the dollar figure there. And then a second Pigford case had to be filed because only 13,000 farmers were included in that first settlement. Another 70,000 had filed late or their claims had not been heard. So in 2010, Congress appropriated another 1.2 building billion. And keep in mind that estimated black land losses, 250 to 350 building billion. So um, despite some efforts by the USDA, there are major barriers. And, and like, as you mentioned, um, building this, this trust because of, of the historical um, uh, 
systemic racism that has happened. So I know we've just skimmed the surface on that, but I wanted to at least provide some context. Um, Mavis, so you you direct the Sustainable Force and African American Land Retention Project, and um, I think one of the unique things about that is how you are 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 really tapped into communities in the seven states where you are. And I was wondering if you could just tell us more about why you think that program has been so successful at the local level. Yeah. Um, I think that the key factor has been the organizations that participate in the Sustainable Forestry and African American Land Retention Project. So the whole project is bedded in partnership, and that includes seven um, black-led, community-based organizations throughout the Southeast that are working directly with the landowners. And although they are all unique in how they are set up, um, they are uh, they they the common thread is that they are led black-led, and they have long-standing um, involvement in the communities where they're working. And so that comes with trust. That comes with um, yeah cultural connections, mm-hmm. and I think that's a key factor in how successful the program has been. Um, I don't think that an organization that historically has not been exclusive or inclusive um, or has not historically and deeply and meaningfully worked with um, this community would be would see the kind of results that the organizations that participate in SFLR have been able to produce. So I think that's the key factor. Um, yeah. Yeah. And isn't it, 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 one of the partners is, is, is was just an electrical company? Is that even so? An electric so it, co-op. Yeah, yeah so, so not even, people. but, but yeah, was integrated really cool. in the community. But And so they didn't necessarily have a, a land or, you know, conservation background, but it was about the connection with the community. Right. So electric co-ops are are cooperative organizations, so member-owned organizations, Mm -hmm. and they are usually in very rural areas that aren't serviced by your larger power companies. So Mm -hmm. in North Carolina, for example, the major players in in that perspective are Duke Energy and Dominion. Um, However, there are pockets across the state that don't have service, and so you have electric co-ops. Roanoke Electric is a co-op in the northeastern part of the state, which also happens to have a higher proportion of African-American landowners. And Mm. they have, um, they already had a history of working with their members to, um, who are business owners or who needed energy efficiency in their homes, you know, just in different ways, um, and saw this program, uh, the the SFLR program, as a way, another way that they can work with their members to um, hopefully build wealth, to have stability, and it's, for their project, they haven't limited it to African-American members. It's open to all of their members. Mm-hmm. So all of their members are able to get education and forestry and connection with resources for the land retention aspect. So it's a pretty cool model, and I yeah. hope that more electric co-ops consider doing this type of work like Roanoke. Yeah, absolutely, That the importance in the rural communities. Mm-hmm. Um, Jillian, you work as a bankruptcy and agricultural lawyer, but you you – you play this role in connecting farmer to legal services. And I'm wondering if you, what are some of the changes you think that, that the legal system might need in order to kind of to fill this historic gap, um, whether for working with African-American farmers or any small farmer or low-income farmer? 
Um, well, yeah, that's a lot. Yeah, <laughs> um, I know. Well, I definitely, no worries. I definitely think it starts with reparations. Yeah. Uh, I think that mm-hmm. the enforcement of the 40 acres in a mule, which was passed by the War Department after post-reconstruction, uh, needs to be implemented and enforced. Mm-hmm. Um, also, there was a case that just came down, I believe, last week in California that gave a um a local tribe that you a local native tribe that used to own the land off the coast of California they gave the land back to the tribe last uh week mm. and even individual white landowners in California I know of one in California and the Dakotas they created a partnership and uh after the life estate of the present family members uh, after they pass away, then the land will be redistributed back to the native tribe. Mm. Um, And so things like that, I think, uh, are definitely, I don't know, hopeful. It keeps me hoping that a land distribution will move towards being evenly distributed because according to the 2017 uh, census that came out in April, uh, people of color, and I'm just saying natives own 58 million, um, Latinos own, I believe, 32 million, uh, African Americans own 4.5, and then Asians own 2.9 million, uh, collectively compared to whites who own 849 million acres. And so, mm. um, I just, I hope that case precedent, like in California, um, is what we're moving towards. Yeah. So. Well, we're going to take a really quick break, and then I want to come back to talking about the role of reparations and other things that might be um, really essential if we were to have a Green New Deal for a more just food system. Welcome back to Lunch Agenda, listeners. I'm your host, Julie Kurtz. We're broadcasting live from Full Service Radio, and we're talking today with two attorneys who specialize in agriculture and land, and African-American land, Jillian Hyshaw and Mavis Gregg. Um, I want to focus now in, in thinking about the Green New Deal, which is just this rather brief resolution, but that talks about how to create a more... Um, equitable system and and to move us forward in the face of our our climate crisis and and I think one of the powerful things about the Green New Deal is it it doesn't just focus on uh, greenhouse gas emissions but there's this huge emphasis on on equity and vulnerable communities and and communities that have been historically and, and systemically deprived of their assets their livelihood and health and and it identifies the wealth gap as a major problem in American society and so um I'm wondering, uh, Jillian, you mentioned this just now, like how would it be possible to have um, a Green New Deal that um, doesn't address either reparations or doesn't address kind of what we've we've been discussing, 
the the trustworthiness of some of these U.S. institutions like the U.S. Department of Agriculture or the Forest Service. Um, would a Green New Deal require these institutions to to get trustworthy for communities that um, that have not been able to trust them in in the past? So if you want to either talk about the institution role or um, or if you have more to say about reparations, I just welcome thoughts on how those fit into a Green New Deal. Well, um, I think as far as government agencies, um, you just need to tear the whole thing down and rebuild it. So mm-hmm. because it's it just needs to be restructured. Uh, but in terms of everything that's like non-federal government agency type thing. Uh, I, I found that when I was working as an environmental planner for the city and then working for the state, um, there were more on-the-ground results on those types of, uh, you know, municipal levels compared to federal government. Um, hmm. And then also there's independent, there's private initiatives you know, mm-hmm. creating some type of lending arm for small farms or farmers of color specifically, things like that, uh, you know, can also be an alternative credit unions, you know, that are owned by co-ops and, and things of this nature. So there's so many ways to skin the cat, but most of the farmers are dependent on USDA. Mm-hmm. But I think as I, it was a MetLife uh, study 2017 and also CBS reports stated that between 07 and 17 over 140,000 farms went out of business or consolidated yeah. and so as there's more consolidation and we try to hold on to the remaining small farms that we have left uh, there needs to be more private initiatives uh, compared mm-hmm. to just depending on public you know public sector agencies so yeah. Mavis, do you have anything to add to that? I think that um, I, I, I agree with what Jillian has said. Um, not that you need my agreement, but I think <laughs> what she says resonates a lot with what, I, what I'm thinking. Um, and I think also, I think we need to appreciate that the concentration of, of environmental injustices that happen in our country, whether it's on a national level or a state level, um, it necessarily overlays with communities of color um, mm-hmm. and where they own land and where they live. And I think that the Green New Deal would have to address that as well um, and have tactical and practical ways of addressing that. Yeah. Um, if you look at North Carolina and um, where, where the concentrations of the confined animal feeding operations Mm. and other operations that pollute communities, they are in the parts of the state that are most populated by communities of color. And that's, I think it's hard to argue that that's not intentional. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Um, And do you think, so with the Green New Deal being endorsed by um, presidential candidates and having like a hundred co-sponsors in Congress, do you think that the presidential candidates and the the co-sponsors have your your communities and your clients in mind when they're talking about a green new deal are they thinking about the kinds of things that 
that we've just mentioned here about what needs to be part of a Green New Deal? I can't really opine on that. I, I can I can judge actions better than I can words, and so I can't say whether I think any of the candidates would be effective than any of the, more effective than any of the others. Um, I, I think it's great that they talk about it, but I really again go back to what what's actually going to happen on the ground, gotcha. and will it happen? Okay, so um, sadly, we we need to wrap this up, and we didn't even get to talk because I, I, I um, Jillian runs a really amazing program, and she's buying produce from from farmers and that supply to food banks. And I don't even get to talk about that issue of of food security. And so, um, I'm going to have to send you to her website and um, to check out more about that because it's a really amazing program and um, really meeting a need for farmers and obviously for eaters. Um, but I, I wanted to give you guys a chance really quick to close out with your lunch agenda action item. So in this tradition where we ask guests for just one simple thing that our listeners can do in their own lives to change our food system for the better. So Jillian Mavis, whoever wants to go to first, what's that one thing that listeners could do to make a better food system? This is something that I've done myself when I first started my law practice and I was talking to a farmer at the farmer's market, a black farmer, and he encouraged me to buy um, black-grown food, Mm. only black-grown food for a week. (laughs) And I tried it and was only able to do it for a day. And I think that taking that action, you know, whether it's black-grown food or eating only locally-grown food for a week, I think that that can give you some perspective on food security and what it feels like to be food insecure, certainly on a very surface level, but to appreciate that if you're trying to only buy food that is locally grown or that's only grown by a person of color, it's very, very difficult to Mm. do. And it's not how we, many of us normally um, acquire our food. And so I think it can shine a light on you know, communities that don't have access or have very limited access, what it feels like to wonder where your food is going to come from and to wonder, can I actually afford the food? What kind of sacrifices do I have to make? Again, a very um, surface level (laughs) experiment. But nothing like the experience of it to really let it Mm -hmm. sink in. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Jillian, do you have an action item to add? Well, um, yeah, I was just going to piggyback off of um, what was stated there. It's really good, and also just encourage people to to buy a subscription to CSA. But um, mm-hmm. if they know of a aging farmer mm. that is alone, or their kids have out of, are out of state, um, definitely check on them and educate them not to sign. Um, a reverse mortgage Mm. or before they qualify for Medicaid to go into the nursing home to seek legal counsel or at least get the land out of um, the farmer's name so that a Medicaid lien won't be placed on the land because that's just, um, that's 
creating a bit of a pickle yeah. is that these nursing homes have a federal authority to take um, to take land in homes, and that's why I wrote the book, Don't Bet the Farm on Medicaid. And I looked at 13 states and their lien laws, and some states do have really great exemptions. Now, out of all those states, Florida have the best state, Florida has the best exemption um, there. But um, definitely, if you know of an older farmer, if you are at Check the farmer's market, just kind of warn them about Medicaid liens. Okay. And I want to encourage all of our listeners, Jillian, at your website, that's www.jillian, two L's, I-A-N, Hyshaw, H-I-S-H-A-W.com. Um, there's a link to your book there, and I think it's an incredibly valuable resource I, that was news to me. So I want to encourage listeners, please go there and share that link, share the information, share the book with a farmer. Um, and then the, people can also find you at farms, f.a.r.m.s on Instagram and at farms30,000 uh, on Twitter. And then Mavis, we can find you at am forest FNDN. So am forest FDN. Um, and then on Facebook at American Forest Foundation. So, um, and then we've got to close it out, but I, Mavis and Jillian, thank you so much. I am really grateful for the work you're doing and just for your time and um, the thoughts you shared. And um, I hope you can, uh, we can have another conversation like this in the future. Thank you, Jillian. Thank you for thank the work you. that you're doing. Yeah. Yes, thank you both. Thank you both, and thank you for having me, Julie. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you, everyone, for tuning in to Lunch Agenda. We'll be back next week. Thanks for listening to this program on Full Service Radio, broadcasting and recording from the Line Hotel in Adams Morgan, Washington, D.C. Full Service Radio programming can be accessed live and archived on fullserviceradio.org. Our talk programming is available on most podcast apps like iTunes and Stitcher, and our DJ sets are available on mixcloud.com slash fullserviceradio. Full Service Radio features over 30 weekly shows and over 50 local hosts covering every topic imaginable. If you want to be a guest or get involved, email us at info at fullserviceradio.org. Follow us on Twitter at fullserviceRDO on Instagram and Facebook at Full Service Radio. Thanks for listening.